Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Hey there, super excited to let you know that uh, ReconditioningHQ.com is going to be dropping two live R1 foundations. That's the foundation of our program, the first course in a series of three that you can take to expose yourself to reconditioning. It's an incredible practice where we bring the worlds of therapy performance and applied neurology together under one operating system. This is not a skills course. This is not about you learning more skills. It's about learning how to critically think, make good decisions, choose the right and most effective strategies and interventions and exercise prescriptions and building programming around that. And R1 Foundations gets you started. And now we're going to do a hybrid type of program where you get all the programming online that we have available to you that you can learn at your own pace, but then we also have two alive weekends, one in Montreal, November 5th, 6th, and one in Victoria, BC, November 19th, 20th. So if you have been waiting to try to do this live, this is the time to plug in. Head over to reconditioninghq.com and get your seat at one of those courses today. And of course, if you are somebody who's already taken a reconditioning course, the R2 Designs courses uh, are out there. The R3 Colab, the R2 Designs, we have an eight-week learning lab program all online coming up starting October 20th. And we meet once a week on Thursdays at 1 p.m. East to go through all the technical information while you are working on learning online. So we will definitely have a future live event for on R2 Designs, but if you've been looking to get that second level course and go to the next level with your practice, now's the time to do it. And uh, look forward to seeing you in the future at one of our courses. Take advantage of improving your practice and becoming a reconditioning professional today. I want to take a moment to really shout out and say thank you to our most important sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Greg Lawler agreed numerous years ago now to support this podcast and to make it what it is today. And he is representative of a corporate culture at Matrix Fitness that is really all about serving the customer and making sure you get what it is you need to do the things you need to do, whether that's serving uh, an entire organization or team or a single individual, building a performance facility, uh, taking care of yourself and your own home fitness needs. MatrixFitness.com does it all, and they are a global company worldwide. You can get any solution you need for your um, product needs, as well as consulting on building your own facility or a facility for your organization. So I can't recommend them enough. I appreciate everything they've done for Leave Your Mark. And I want this community to support what is our greatest sponsor, MatrixFitness.com. Head over to their site today and see what it is that they have and how they might be able to solve any problem you might have. 
I recognized a long time ago in my own journey how challenging the world of human performance can be at whatever spectrum you're in, whether it's in university athletics, clinical practice, performance, sport, whatever the space might be, or individual training of athletes or working with athletes in every domain. I know it can be very challenging. I have experienced it at every level. I've been in clinical practice. I've worked at university level training. I've worked on one and one team environments, uh, pro environments, Olympic athlete environments, uh, looked over and managed professionals, built performance teams. I really have done it all and experienced it all. And within the scope of that, experienced a lot of challenge and difficulty in my own life. And so part of the reason for this podcast was to expose the experiences of other professionals uh, online and let you, the listener, experience their journey so you can take away insights. And that's why I started the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, because I know that it's not an easy journey and having somebody who's experienced it and other practitioners within a community to talk to, understand it and experience it together and walk through some of the different skills and strategies and practices that can make your life that much better are huge. We've been uh, deep in it for the last five months. I've had the first cohort of the Leave Your Mark Life Lab running. It has been unbelievable experience for the people in the program. And they are excited about what is left to do in this coming year. And I am so excited that I am opening a new cohort. So at the beginning of October of 2022, a new cohort will open. So if you've been waiting to get into the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, the time is now. So head over to lymlab.com. That's www.lymlab.com. You can Download two free Kickstart videos that will get you started on the process of life change and sort of seeing what we're going to get into. You can read on the Life Lab page what it's all about. And if you're into it and you want to take your world and your journey to another level, then apply today. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Carson Patterson. Carson currently serves as a performance coach at the Olympic Training Center at the University of Innsbruck, where he trains athletes from various sports for Austria. He's had an illustrious career in performance sport and many years ago served as the lead SNC for Canada's Alpine ski team. He's a Canadian but fell in love with a lady from Austria and never looked back. He chose a circuitous path through life and i'm looking forward to unpacking it all welcome carson thanks scotty great to be here it's i consider it a privilege and an honor so looking forward to it well you know it's uh, i i get to interview people all kinds of people from different places in their careers and it's always nice to sit and chat with guys of the same uh, generation in some sense and walk through you know how we got to where we got to and where all the all the different people we interacted I, it was funny reading some of your stuff that you sent me i i didn't realize you worked with howie wenger i worked with howie when i was in uh, new york with the rangers for a couple of years oh, really? so, yeah so, uh, cup ring, man. <laughs> i i i wasn't with him when he won the cup okay. um, i was with him years later when uh when he was sort of uh saying goodbye to it and i was kind of coming in and taking over from him in some sense but uh yeah so walk me back you you uh grow up where and what are you sort of dreaming about when you're little little carson 
<laughs> when I was little, Carson, this is embarrassing to, to admit, but I wanted to be like Bobby Hall. I grew uh, up in County, Alberta, uh, on the North Hill, uh, really close to downhill, but on the North Hill. And uh, I was I played a lot of sports, but as a little guy, hockey was the big sport for me. Mm, Bobby Hall was your man. Yeah. You're a Hall fan. There you go. Yeah. And did you did you still like him when he went and played for the Winnipeg Jets, or you were or were? Uh, uh, I would. This is going to sound pretty naive, but I was 12 years old. I remember they had the big uh, billboards to Russia with Hull <laughs> because that's when he jumped, so he didn't get to play with Team Canada. Yeah. And, uh, I was 12 years old, and I was shocked to realize, like. I mean, I knew they all had contracts and they got paid, but I was shocked to see that this guy's, one of his big motivations was money. This guy's playing hockey for money as a 12-year-old, you know. Yeah, it was an interesting time. I don't know that people know the story now. It's so long ago, but when Russia and Canada first played and the Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull were, were big players. So Gordie was at sort of the twilight of his career, but both of them went and started the WHA uh, and and jumped over. And I, I was a big Bruins fan and Jerry Cheevers went too. And so these guys weren't allowed, even though it was a team Canada, because they weren't in the NHL anymore, they wouldn't let them play in that tournament. Huh? Yeah. That's good. Cool. Um, um, then I, when I went, I went to U of T for a year, University of Toronto, and I met a guy, and we were banging tennis balls in the hallway of our uh, of our student uh, residence, and uh, and I said to the guy, I said something about Bobby Hull, and the guy mentioned something about him that we learned about him later in life, which was a shock for me at that time, and I was like, oh wow, he's not the guy I thought he was. We'll leave <laughs> it. A- at that. <laughs> He was a character, yes, that's for sure. A lot of hockey, a lot of hockey guys were characters. So, once you got over dreaming about being Bobby Hull, what uh, what sort of was carrying you towards uh, where you have have become the professional that you are? Were you really playing sports, and sports was your thing, or were you also an academic? Academic. Uh, I wanted to be an architect as a kid, actually. Okay. And then I, when I was in high school, there was another guy I went to high school with. His name was Walter Morin, and we both uh, we went and interviewed a couple of architects. They led us into their office and spent some time with us, which is really gen- generous of them. And uh, one of the guys was actually quite positive, and then another guy was um, not so encouraging, and he said, you'll probably get a job as a draftsman, and you'll just be a draftsman for an architect working in a big office. And I thought that didn't sound too exciting. And I, I got accepted at the University of Manitoba because at that time in Calgary, they didn't have a bachelor's program in architecture. But I got accepted uh, at the University of Manitoba. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to go to Winnipeg. Winters in Calgary are bad enough. And I've heard what the winters are like in uh in Winnipeg, so I don't think I want to go. So I decided not to go. And then my high school football coach said that Pete Canellan, who was the coach at the University of uh, of Calgary, asked if I. Uh, I thought it was Pete Canellan who asked, but when I played for UFC at the beginning, Mike Lashik was the head coach. But one of the coaches at UFC asked if I wanted to travel for the team, and I was really flattered that somebody. Uh, thought I could play university football, so I thought, well, sure, I'll try that out. So I went to UC and did general studies to start mm-hmm. out. And how was the how was the athletic career? 
Uh, it was okay. Now, because I'm working with elite athletes, I would say it was pretty average. But uh, I ran 110-meter hurdles. I was Canadian uh, junior 110-meter uh, hurdles champion. And uh, when I played at UFC, actually, unfortunately, the year we won the national championship was UFC's first national championship uh as a, I was a defensive back, I uh, blew up my knee that season, so I didn't mm. play much, but uh, mm. did okay. But then injuries basically prevented me from trying to go further. Mm. What did playing yeah. football and training for football sort of teach you when you look back? When I look back, taught me the value of a coach, of a conditioning coach, because I never had one throughout my whole career. <laughs> As an athlete, I never had a conditioning coach. I had, when I ran track, I had a track coach. In football, I had a head coach and a DB coach. And I played rugby and had rugby coach, but uh, never had a conditioning coach. Mm -hmm. So you just watch what other guys did in the gym and uh, learn from your mistakes. And yeah, well, when you and I were growing up uh, in Canada, anyways, like that, it didn't really exist. I mean, oh. No. I mean, the whole infrastructure around performance was, you know, maybe maybe with some elite Olympic athletes, there was construct, but it was all the NCAA had some things. And for me, I remember always looking at, you know, it was the muscle mags and uh, and uh, what the football guys were doing, like the Pittsburgh Steelers offensive linemen. They were all benching and you would watch the world yeah. strongest man competitions and Bill Kazmaier would be lifting things. And you're like, OK, I got how do I go lift and bench press? And everything was bench press and yeah. then maybe squatting. <laughs> yeah. when, I, when I started playing football at UC, I was 155 pounds, so I was pretty intimidated. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember going into the weight room. They had this fairly small weight room in the basement of the phys ed building. And it was kind of like a dungeon, no windows or anything. And uh, there was a big guy in there with, they always wore a muscle shirt or a spaghetti strap shirt. And he always had, remember everyone used to wear those gray sweatpants? Yeah. <laughs> and this guy, he always wore sweatpants and he had this huge upper body. Like he looked like he, he was probably about six, two, six, three. And he looked like he uh, weighed cause he had the gray sweatpants on. He looked like he weighed probably two twenty, two thirty, 230 and uh, 155 pounds soaking wet. I was just a little squirrel running around in the weight room, but I had decent, I didn't have big legs, but they were muscular from all the track I ran. And then I saw this guy in the shower one time without his sweatpants off, uh, without his sweatpants. And I thought, Carson, don't be afraid of anyone in the weight room. Just go in there and do your own thing. Saying that question, are you riding the, uh, are those your legs or are you riding the chicken? Chicken. <laughs> uh, 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 that that changed my perspective a little bit. I mean, I was still I was still tiptoed around in the weight room, but I wasn't as uh, intimidated anymore about training. So how did you how did you discover that this industry could be a vocation for yourself without that sort of representative inspiration around you at that time? Okay, um, well, I wasn't. I ended up not deciding to do architecture, and then I decided, well, what am I going to do? And um, I thought, well, I know I want to go back to university. I don't want to be a laborer for the rest of my life because I was doing some laboring at the time. 
and um, decided to do phys ed. And at first, because I, I thought, well, I'd always done well academically in school and at university. And, uh, and I thought, well, don't really know what I want to study, don't really have a passion for anything, but I love sports, so I, I think I'll just take phys ed. And at that time, there weren't a lot of options in phys ed. We called it phys ed back then. Hmm. I thought, well, I'll be a phys ed teacher. That's pretty cool professional, because I had a couple of good phys ed teachers when I, went, when I was in junior high and uh, high school. And then when I, I took an exercise physiology course with a guy named Dave Smith, Dr. David J. Smith, and I was gobsmacked that you could use science to train effectively. And I thought, holy shit, this is what I want to study. I want to work with athletes and I want to make them strong. I want to make them fast. I want to make them great. This is what I want to do. It was just like a light switch. Wow. Uh, what was it about Dave's teaching or, or his exemplification that, that caught you that uh, was? Well, the he, he was. Uh, did you ever meet Dave? I've met Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know yeah. him super well, but I know. No. Yeah. Um, it, he's not an, an extrovert, but you could feel his passion. Hmm. Like he was really into working with athletes and he used to he used to talk about some of the stuff he was doing with the uh, national with the national um, volleyball team, national speed skating team. He worked with uh, Gaetan Boucher. Mm -hmm. uh, the national volleyball team was really fit back then. They thought they would win a medal, I think, in 84, and I think they ended up in fourth place. So we always, he had really good teams. And then my best friend was a swimmer for UFC swim team, and at that time they had an excellent swim program with a coach named Derek Snelling. Mm. Graham Smith was in the program at that time and my friend told me about this Dr. Dave Smith and I don't think I'd taken his course yet and he said this guy's taking blood samples from us and he's telling us all what we swim and he doesn't know what we swim but he knows if we're sprinters or if we're distance guys and the guy's like it's voodoo man it's voodoo this guy's <laughs> thinking about us and all he's doing is taking blood from us so I thought that was cool <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting, um, and I'm kind of interested to see how you sort of precipitated the idea of of the gym and strength coaching because a lot of the table setters for performance uh, in Canada. I mean, we can only we can't really speak of the American process, but with the Canadian process, a lot of those table setters were guys like Dave and Howie Wenger, and they were physiologists at heart in some sense, right? And exercise phys guys, so. When do you start to see, like, you're, you're obviously learning about the sports science or the performance science side of things, but when do you start to see that the gym and the weight room and strength training is a, a vocational possibility for you versus, like, why don't you become a, a, um, an exercise physiologist, so to speak, versus a, a strength conditioning coach? That, that was my goal, actually, to become an exercise physiologist. So when I finished my program at UFC, um, I, I did. I had pretty good marks in the program, and uh, I didn't think I'd have a problem getting into a master's program. They didn't have a master's program in Calgary at that time, and so I thought, well, where am I going to go? And I talked to somebody. She was a acquaintance of uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, she she said, "Oh, there's a guy out of Victoria. I think she went to U of A and worked with a guy named Angelo Bella Castro." 
And she said, if you're really into working with athletes, there's a guy out in Victoria and his name's Howie Wenger and he's supposed to be really good. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll uh, see if I can get, it, get into UVic. And uh, I applied to U of A and I was accepted at U of A, but I didn't know the guy who I would be working with if I got in there. So I decided, well, see if I can get into Victoria. And uh, I remember I went to Dave Smith and I asked him for a, I asked him for a reference, but he didn't know me very well because I was one of these guys, because I played football and ran track, I hate to admit this, but I wanted to be cool. So I never, I always sat at the back of the classroom, you know, I never wanted to look like a keener. And then I would cram for exams and do fairly well on exams, but I wasn't really a keener in class. And, uh, Dave didn't know me, so I went to him and asked him if he'd give me a reference. And, and then I had heard that Dave Smith had done his PhD with Howie Wenger. So I thought, wow, Howie must be, must be pretty good. I really like to work with him. So I asked Dave if he'd give me a reference, and he, and he looks at me and says, no. And I said, oh, well, why is that? He says, because I don't know you. And he says, well, what did you get for a mark in my class? And I said, then either an A or an A minus. I think it was an A minus. And he says, oh, well, you must be a pretty good student because if you got an A minus for me, you must know your stuff. And he said, but I can't give you a reference because I don't know you. And that's the thing that I liked at the time. I was pissed, naturally. But that's the thing I liked about the guy. The guy was a straight shooter. Right. Yeah. And then I ended up working for him a few years later. So that was kind of ironic. But... Um, and then, so I, I applied to UVic, and Howie didn't accept me because he didn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> so Howie, uh, Howie, Howie wouldn't take people that he didn't know because he had no idea what their work ethic was. Mm. And I learned later from Howie, he said he didn't care how smart you were. He just wanted to know if you're willing to work hard. So I, got, I started the master's out at UVic with another, with another gentleman by the name of uh, Dave Doherty. He was big into rugby and also did exercise physiology out at UVic. And so I started out with Dave Doherty, and then I thought, well, I'll just try to get as much um, contact with Howie as possible and sort of learn by osmosis. And so I would go into the lab all the time. And the first time I went into the lab to ask if there was something to do, they were doing VO2 max tests. And I said, well, is there anything I can do? Can I help out? And they said, yeah, sure you can wash the mouthpieces. So as the guys, they got the mouthpieces after a test, I was the guy washing the mouthpieces. And that's how I started working in the lab as a volunteer. It wasn't getting paid, it was just volunteer work. But I would go in there as much as I could whenever I had free time and they needed people because I just wanted to learn. So about halfway through my first semester, how he was walking across campus and I was close to him and he says hey Carson come here we're walking together and he says well I know you, I heard you wanted to work with me when you first got here and uh do you still want to work with me and I said oh sure and at that time I was I didn't call him Howie I called him Dr. Wenger because mm -hmm. you know I was brought up to respect my elders and I said well uh Dr. Wenger yeah that would be great to work with you but uh I don't know how Dr. Doherty will feel about that. I said, ah, don't worry about him. I'll take care of it. So you're working with me. And I was like, wow, this is great. So I was walking on clouds for a couple of days because I got to work with uh, Dr. Wenger. Took me a while. Took me a few months to be able to call him Howie. Wow. This, this would have been what years? That would have been 85. Okay. 
and so you finished you finished doing your masters with him and yeah and uh what's what's the biggest thing you learned from him biggest thing i've learned i asked howie to come on the show about two years ago and he was like no scotty i don't want to to do that now you know (laughs) usual howie kind of answer but yeah yeah, if you can ever convince him to come on that would be great he's i would love to have him on but Uh, yeah um, also trying to work getting Smith on at some point. We'll we'll see where we can go with all this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> great, great guy, but yeah, he's not an extrovert. But how he yeah. probably taught me work hard but have fun. Mm. You know, well, how he's like, that's interesting because he's kind of the opposite of Dave. Like yeah. Dave is very introverted and quiet and goes about his business. How he's very extroverted and sort of all about you know the. Yeah. The, the 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 vim and the vigor of the moment, so to speak. Yeah. So yeah. Kind of irreverent, you know. Yeah. Like my sister came out to visit me when I was I worked in the lab one summer. Then I got paid to work in the lab over the summer, and uh, my sister came out to visit. So she came out to the lab one day, and she's thirteen years older than me. So at that time, I was about twenty five, and she was thirty eight. So, um. She comes into the lab and she's, oh yeah, and Carson, how he happened to be in the lab that day, and she's, oh yeah, Carson's doing okay. We have to wipe his bum for him every once in a while, but he's doing okay. That's just how he, you know. I just love the fact that he's just, he's just Howie. Mm-hmm. You know, he he knew his stuff. I remember one, t- one time when I was wondering what I was going to do when I finished my master's, I talked to him and he said, you know, Carson, I, sometimes I go to a conference and somebody's presenting and he thinks, geez, I could run circles of the, around this guy in terms of research. But he said when he started his career, he wanted to do some teaching. He wanted to do some consulting. He wanted to work with athletes and he wanted to uh, do a little bit of research. And he said he'll never be great at one of those because he wanted to do all three. Hmm. And he said, you know, I never made it. I look back and I, and I think I never made a decision that I regretted that with the information I had when I made the decision, it was the right decision. And sure, sometimes I go to conferences and think I wish I had done more research. But on the most part, I'm very, very satisfied. And that was a learning uh, tip for me as well. Hmm. So all this yeah. time, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to the weight room and pushing weights, and it's something that's part part of your life, or or well, not? when I, when I was at UFC, I finished my degree in in Calgary in '84, and when I I said I started out at UFC at 155, when I quit at UFC, I was about 185, 187, so I put about 30 pounds of mainly muscle on with bad nutrition. But eating a lot nobody does good nutrition in university anyways yeah but eating lots and uh and training hard training stupid but training hard and then um and when i finished playing football i kind of took a break from the weight room for a couple of years and when i was at uvic there were guys that lifted there was a guy named steve parker in the in the master's program he's a physio and uh he lifted, but most of the guys that I was going to school with didn't lift. They were more into running and endurance stuff. 
And uh, I decided to start playing rugby. The first year out there, I just wanted to concentrate on my studies, so I, I didn't do any sports. I was running and doing different things, but I wasn't lifting at all. And uh, then I started playing rugby, and some of the rugby players were doing weights, but there wasn't a big... Uh, there wasn't a huge weightlifting culture at uh, UVic when I was there. The, the rowers were lifting, but um, I did a little bit of lifting with a guy I played rugby with, but I didn't lift a lot at UVic, and I was more more into the metabolism and aerobic side of things. Hmm. And it wasn't until, I'm jumping ahead here, but when I uh, started working with the Canadian um, bobsleigh team, and Charles Pollockin was doing the strength work. That's when I got uh, really uh, not involved, but seeing strength up close again. Mm. And uh, I really regret that when I worked with Charles, I didn't go into the weight room and say, hey, Charles, put me on the program. <laughs> so so it, it took me a few years. It took me a few years to get into uh, strength training again. Mm. And um, so when I worked with the bobsleigh team, I was uh, I was the sprint coach and Charles was the strength coach. And like I said, I regretted the fact that I didn't uh, take advantage of, of his knowledge and learn more from him at the time. But um, so where did you where did you just before you get into the depth of that, like you're. You, because of your track uh, training and now your physiology and the things you're doing, you get into speed training, and that's what you're kind of making your making your bread doing, um, so to speak, as being more of a speed coach at this point in your in your life. Well, I was I was after I finished my um, my degree at UVic, got my master's at UVic. I took a year off and went skiing in Whistler. I decided I wanted to learn how to ski. I'd skied a little bit before, but not a lot, and I thought. I, I love skiing and I'm going to go up to Whistler and try and get a job as a waiter and ski. So hmm. went up to Whistler and ended up working at Araxi's. I think it's still up there. It's just called Araxi now, but worked as a waiter there. And then in summer I worked construction and uh, became a better skier, but never became a good skier. And um, <laughs> then went back to UVic and I took, I, Taught a couple of courses at UVic, and um, then the lab tech position for Dave Smith, which was basically doing a lot of testing, do VO2 max tests and Wingate tests and stuff for Dave at U of C in the Human Performance Lab. I got that job in 1990, and uh, then started working as a track coach. Well, working as a track coach, track coach basically, and. Uh, voluntary in Calgary or at mm -hmm. that time. Um, so working as a lab tech at UC and coaching track and then got involved with the bobsleigh team with a, through a bobsleigh athlete named John Graham. Mm. John was a, a bobsleigh athlete, good bobsleigh athlete, and also 400-meter hurdler. Uh, Semi-finalist at the Seoul Olympics, so a very good 400-meter uh, hurdler. And the, the bob team was looking for a sprint coach, and so John suggested me. He knew me from track, and he suggested me as a sprint coach. So I started uh, working with the bobsleigh team, and they were obviously really heavily working uh, in the weight room, but I, I was just doing the sprint side of things. And in Calgary, there were people in track doing weights, but in the group that I 
trained with when I was an athlete, there were very few athletes, sprinters doing weights, if you can believe that or not. Hmm. Well, I went out, to, I did a year at U of T. This was a lost year academically, but 79, 80, I was out at U of T and I wish that I had run into the Scarborough optimists <laughs> and uh, had a chance to, to train with Charlie uh, Francis and learn the importance of strength training in sprinting. Right. Because yeah, up, up to that point, I did no, no strength work as a track athlete. I, mm-hmm. There was a good friend of mine, Dave Burton. He worked with a guy from Toronto who's actually European. His uh, first name was Bogdan. I can't remember his last name, but Dave was doing programs with him. Bogdan was national jumps coach. And Dave was doing weights, mainly legs, but he was doing weights and plyometrics. And sometimes I do, I do his stuff, but just thought, well, he's a jumper. I don't need this. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting back in those days, there was kind of these little pods of, of experimentation and, uh, and things that people were doing. Charlie obviously had things, was an Ottawa boy that went out to Calgary and did a whole bunch of stuff with the bobsled guys. And then there was the, the Toronto group with Charlie and people out in BC. And then you had these physiologists that were kind of like the trendsetters early and got into hockey early, like Howie yeah. and Dave. And um, I forget the guy's name in Toronto that did, did a whole bunch of stuff, but just want to go back one second with the thing where you took the year off. Cause I, I often, you know, when I'm talking to younger people and, and sort of uh, mentoring them, I one of some people ask me what's what's your biggest sort of insight from looking back, and I said people are too much in a rush to to become responsible. But I never did that. I, sh- I it's one of my sort of wishes that I had taken a year or two off and kind of traveled or done something different. What did that? What did that year? When you look back at that year and just just effing off and skiing and working, what did it contribute to your maybe finding? what you wanted to do or inspiring you to find what you wanted to do? Um, well, one thing I learned was money's important. I mean, this might, this might, sound, this might sound kind of stupid because I'm a strength and conditioning guy. Or I, I'm, so, you know, money's important. Well, what are you doing working as a fucking coach? <laughs> but important, but not everything. Right. So when I was in Whistler, I thought, geez, you know, like on some, uh, in some ways Whistler was great. In other ways it was terrible because for me, it's a very class oriented society. You got the people with the money and then right. you got the grunts who do all the work. Right. 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 And I thought, well, I have to figure out some kind of scam that I can make money here because I don't want to just be a grunt for the people that make money. And I was living in a, in a small apartment and it was a house where they had built in a small apartment inside the house a two-bedroom apartment and I was sharing it with another guy and my girlfriend came up for the weekend and the landlady she comes and knocks on the door and she says oh I see there's a strange car in the driveway and I said yeah that's my girlfriend's car she goes I don't allow guests <laughs> and I said this she's my girlfriend she said, I don't allow guests and I talked to my roommate. My roommate had lived in that apartment for quite a while, and he knew the lady. And so he convinced her that my girlfriend could stay. Because, you know, you hear the stories about people, one person renting an apartment, and then there's six people end up living there. But 
you know, Whistler as a landlord at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, you could pick and choose and say, hey, Scotty, too bad. Don't want you here anymore. Fuck off. Because there's 10 <laughs> guys that will take that apartment. Right. You know, and, and I thought, well, you're either a have or a have not. And I, I don't want to be in Whistler as a have not. So I thought either figure out a way to make some fucking dough or get out of here. <laughs> so, so I left. And then I went back to UVic and did a little bit of teaching. And then yeah. figured out how to not make money. <laughs> well, actually, when I was 30, I, I started, I told you about the guy who was a jumper, Dave Burton. Yeah. Um, he introduced me to a friend of his who was a financial planner. And he said, Carson, you better start thinking about your future. And I thought, yeah, not a bad idea. So when I was about 30, I started squirreling money away and trying to invest it or get someone to invest it for me. So had that in the back of my mind but that's good that's good so so tell me how do you end up getting hooked up as the speed coach for bobsleigh at this point like who refers you and gives you that opportunity yeah there was there was i was working with calgary spartans the coach there at the time was john cannon okay and um john graham the 400 meter hurdler i mentioned before was was working with the team and the Canadian bobsleigh team was looking for a Canadian sprint coach. They had a good, a good conditioning coach from Italy, um, Gerhard uh, Georg Wert, and he, they wanted a young Canadian to come in and start working with Georg, and then Georg to kind of pass, pass it on to whoever this young Canadian sprint coach would be. Hmm. And so John recommended me to the team, and I met a couple of guys from the team, and. Uh, went to one of their training camps and did a little bit of work and talked to Georg and he asked me what I was into and we just talked about training and they decided, well, maybe this guy is the guy we could use. And so I started working with the bobsleigh team. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're there, you're there in sort of that Zenith period when looters is starting to come online charlie's yeah. kind of the underpinning of the strength and there's a lot of experimentation you're also so, probably there around yeah, the, ta the yeah. time that uh shit goes sideways with uh the tr with ben johnson and and uh, all the all the stuff with the you know the the drugs and all that sort of stuff so talk about the atmosphere around training for bobsleigh at that time because pierre becomes kind of he, he's a, a very volatile and interesting character and charlie was too one of my biggest one of my regrets was not yeah was not getting to 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 sit down with charlie in a conversation like this um before he passed Scott, away now that charles has passed away i guess you can call him charlie but nobody called him charlie yeah <laughs> I, I used to call him that when i would run into him but yeah not many people did but it's fine yeah, yeah. um yeah well that was ben as you know was 88 and i i started working with the bobsleigh team in 91 and um Creatine was a big thing. Like around 92 or 93, a lot of guys were hearing about creatine and then Charles filled them in about creatine. And there might have been things going on with the team, but uh, there weren't any any positive tests at that time. Um, 
I was, that was, that became a taboo topic. I know when mm. I played football at UC, there was a guy, don't want to say too much because then people might figure out who this guy is, but a guy that I knew on the team that I know was taking D-ball or D- mm. Diana ball. Mm. And the reason that I know that is because the two of us were at a doctor's one time at the same time. And so I know, and then there was another guy I played football with. And a few years later, I ran into him out on the town one night and he said he did one cycle of something. So there was a little bit of stuff going on at UC in the early eighties that I know of. Uh, don't know how prevalent it was. Um, I know a lot of guys were, were doing black beans before games and at halftime, you know, like amphetamines. Um, mm-hmm. And I used to get so up for games, I didn't need amphetamine. I remember one time I, I made a good play. I was a defensive back, and I made a good play, and I, was, I started screaming and jumping up and down. And the head coach looks at one of the guys next to him and says, that guy's crazy. So I probably would have been totally uh, revved up if I had done any, any beanies or any um, amphetamines when I played. But I know guys were doing amphetamines, but no one talked about other stuff. But I do know that there was a little bit of that going on. Mm. Yeah, so what, what, what was your experience? Ben, was, was, sorry, before Ben, no one talked about it, but it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, and then yeah. after Ben, it was a huge deal. And but people still didn't talk about it really. Right, right. Like, I was always scared, uh, especially after the Ben scandal. I was pretty scared and just stayed away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much did so? How much did Charles um, influence your your um, injection into strength conditioning then like obviously your sprint coach he's strength coach you don't you mentioned not not doing a program of his but so how what's his influence in your um trajectory as a professional probably more of a work ethic um walk the walk um i hate to say this but it's true I was too fucking stupid to learn from him and understand the importance of strength in sprinting mm. at that time. Right. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'm doing the, all the sprint stuff and he's doing the strength stuff. You know, it, it's his school. Mm. But um, a couple of times I was over at Charles's place and uh, just a very serious guy, mm. like, I remember he told me I have to read this book, Life 101, and it was, it was uh, I never read it, but uh, he used to scare me sometimes because he was just so serious, so serious about everything he did. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he was just, he was just so into what he did. And do you know Andre Benoit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know fun. Andre well, but I've I've met him and spent some time with him. He was yeah. a really good friend of Charles and was kind of Charles right hand, his right hand man. And uh and a couple of times we were talking about Charles and uh Andre figures he probably had Asperger because he was so focused. Hmm. And uh yeah, sometimes he was just so serious and working so hard that I, I found him. I mean, he was a big guy, mm-hmm. but uh, 
he didn't really scare me in a physical sense, but he scared me just because he was so tunnel visioned with his work. Yeah, no, but, he was intense. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 every time I ran into him in my career was there was always this intensity and you would share things, but um, it was <laughs> you felt like you had to be on your double down game on whatever you'd read or done or been or it was. Uh, and he's he's one of the people who really pushed pushed a wake of uh, of how Canadians do strength conditioning. That's for sure. He was he was a, a big player in that world. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest. Not going to mince words here. It doesn't matter whether your operating environment is a clinical space or your operating environment is the performance gym or training space. These two worlds live together synchronously. It's important to understand the continuum of injury to performance wherever you come in at it or inject yourself within it. Bottom line is you are going to be a better practitioner and your clients are going to have better results if you understand the whole continuum and you understand how to best use all the skills that you have in the right space at the right time with the right decision making. And that's what the operating system neural reconditioning does. It brings the worlds of therapy and performance together under applied neurology. It gives you the answers to your questions about where to do what and when. And at the end of the day, why the person is dealing with the problems that they're dealing with, either performance-centric problems or injury-centric problems. We want to eliminate those, make more robust individuals, and take care of our clients in the best way possible. So become a reconditioning practitioner today. We have courses uh, starting at R1 Foundations, taking you to R2 Designs, and then the R3 Colab, wherever you need to keep going or start. These courses are available on our site at www.reconditioninghq.com. We have two Alive R1 Foundations coming up in November, and we also have all our online products and applications. So take a look at what we're doing today. We invite you to ch- take your practice to another level. Okay, I'm going to keep this one simple. I mean, if you're looking for equipment to fill your facility that's brand new and you want to deck it out with the best in the business or you need somebody to help you decide what to put in your facility and organize it, structure it, or you just want to build a home gym or a home facility, or you need a specific piece of equipment to to serve a specific uh, purpose in your human performance system. MatrixFitness.com has an answer for you, and the people there are into making sure that you get what you need, that you are served, and that effectively your problem is solved. So it's easy. If you've got a problem or an issue or something you need to get, uh, then it comes to serving the human performance needs of your clients or yourself. Head over to matrixfitness.com today and check out what they have. You won't be disappointed. Maybe you've suffered burnout. Maybe you've been challenged with decision making or how to balance a life of fatherhood and being at home or a partnership. 
maybe it's just simply overwhelming to be in the work that you're doing or you just don't know how to make the right decision in the right direction for the right reasons. There could be a whole host of things that you're challenged by in the human performance industry. But basically, the reason we started the Leave Your Mark Life Lab is to support and help professionals get through what it takes to be a human performance professional in today's world of performance. This lab is for anyone. It doesn't have to be just a human performance professional. We've had a group of great people uh, going through our first cohort, and so far the feedback has been unbelievable. Everybody is thriving within it and learning new skills and capacities and strategies to navigate life and make better decisions and to live a more fulfilling life. And that's really what my goal is, both through the podcast and through the LYM Life Lab. So if you're interested in applying for the next cohort, which opens in October, simply head over to lymlab.com and you can download two free videos, which will take you through some of the stuff that we're doing initially. And you can also read about the Leave Your Mark Life Lab on the Life Lab page. Get clarity on what we're doing, what we get into, and what we play with during the next year. So would love to have you involved. Go over and apply today if it interests you to live a more fulfilling life. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Um, well, Matt Nichols, Matt Nichols said in a talk at, the, uh, at one of the Swiss conferences... Uh, from Ken Kinnikin, um, Matt Nichols said, anybody who's here who is getting paid as a strength coach and making money as a strength coach, you all have to say thank you to Charles Pollican. Yeah. Because he's yeah. the one who started that in Canada, the people yeah. getting paid to do yeah. strength programs. Yeah. Well, he was, uh, he was the one who uh, inspired me to, um, in, his, in not a direct but an indirect way to do what I did and uh, you know it's and we were all in a period of time where that canvas was kind of paintable because nobody was really doing it you know there were little pockets of people doing it in different places but yeah. so you, you you worked for bobsley for how long and then till 94 and then you transitioned to starting working with the alpine is that it in the uh, yeah so from from 1990 to 94, I worked for Dave Smith in the Human Performance Lab. And then um, I was going to go with the team, with the Bobsley team, to Lillehammer. So I'm trying to figure things out. And I, w- I was kind of burnt out. Um, I was uh, pretty straight-laced uh, as, a, as an adolescent uh, played lots of sports. The school I went to in Calgary was a really big sports school at that time. I played basketball, football, rugby there, ran track. And a lot of my buddies that I did sports with, like in the sports clique, were smoking and drink. Well, not token. No one was smoking tobacco, but a lot of, lot of drinking and a lot of uh, mild drugs. And I was brought up in a very straight-laced uh, Orthodox Christian family, and so I never touched this stuff. I go to the parties and I'd have fun, and then some of these guys were my buddies, but never indulged myself. And then uh, when I moved back to Calgary from, uh, from Victoria in 1990, that was 
but where I basically made up for lost time, <laughs> where I was I was the straight laced goody goody white white sheep of the family. As an adolescent, I I kind of went squirrely from about thirty to thirty four. So I was working at the university as a tech, as a lab tech, and coaching track. So my day was basically working till four o'clock, then go to the track and coach track till about seven, and then go home. Or maybe not go home, get something to eat, and then go out. And not every night, but probably from Thursday till Saturday for sure. And then every once in a while during the week as well. And um, and then I started coaching with the bobsleigh team. So I was coaching with a track club, coaching bobsleigh, and working a normal job. Hmm. And so it was work hard, party hard. And so when the team was getting ready to go to Europe and we're just trying to figure out the logistics of how we're going to do the trip and if we're going to stay in Europe before the Olympics or come back to Canada. And then I realized, okay, then from about middle of January, we're going to be in Europe until the Olympics. And then what happens after the Olympics? And I thought, well, I'd like to stay in Europe. And maybe if I get lucky, I'll be able to... uh, be able to find some sort of job where I can work in sports in Europe. And there was a guy, a biomechanist from the University of Innsbruck, who had spent a year in, in Calgary, and his name's Werner Nachbauer, and he was my connection to uh, Innsbruck. Hmm. And so I asked him if there was a chance of doing something in Innsbruck after the Olympics. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll probably be able to find something for you. So I ended up editing a paper that he and another researcher were working on, an English paper. And uh, basically, he he paid for my uh, accommodation. I lived in a student residence and worked on this paper. And then the guy I shared the office with in, in Innsbruck, at the University of Innsbruck, we talked a lot about training. He had actually spent some time as a coach in Canada. His name is Thomas Reiter. And um, he was coaching with the Austrian team at that time, but he had worked with Canada. And the the uh, men's downhill team was looking for a conditioning coach. And Thomas says, hey, you should apply for the job. And I said, I've never worked with skiers. He says, yeah, but you know a lot about, you know a lot about training because we've talked a lot about training. And I... I'd, uh, I'd tested the Canadian ski team when I worked for Howie Wenger in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Guys like Brian Stemmel and uh, Don Stevens and Felix Belcheck. And so I tested those guys. So I had a little bit of an idea of the requirements of skiing. And I thought, well, why not? So I applied for the job and got the job at, uh, uh, with the World Cup downhill team, men's mm-hmm. team. Uh, but you were living in Europe and servicing was- the work around them. Okay. Yeah, and so that started in June of 1990, and then I phoned Dave and told him, well, I'm going to work with the Austrians. So cause Dave and I had made a deal. He gave me a leave of absence until September. So before I left with the bobsleigh team, I told Dave I'd like to take some time off after the Olympics. And he says, oh, well, what, what do you want, like a couple of weeks? And I said, well, actually, if it's possible, a couple of months. So he scratches his head and he says, well, when the semester starts in September, if you're back here in September, you know, you can have a leave of absence till the end of August. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Thanks. So 
got the leave of absence, and then in June got the job with the Austrians, and I phoned up Dave and told him I was going to be working with the Austrians, so I'd have to resign from my job at UFC and uh, did all the necessary bureaucratic stuff to resign from the UFC and uh, started working with the Austrians. Hmm. And where do you, when do you, how do you meet your lovely wife, Regina? The first time I met her, she was uh, um, working in the accounting department at the uh, with the ski team. And the very first time I met her was, uh, was I went in to talk to a, another woman who she shared the office with about the things I had to do with my contract and, you know, social insurance and different things like that. And uh, Regina was in the office and we, we talked briefly, but not that long. And uh, there's kind of a vulgar expression. Uh, don't uh, don't empty your bowels where you dine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I never, never, re- I thought, you know, I found her attractive and nice to talk to, but never really gave it any. So I thought, oh, I'm a new guy here and I'm, you know, concentrated on work and that was it. And then a few months later, I was uh, out and I ran into her in a bar. Mm. And I didn't remember her um, from meeting her at the ski team, but we got talking. And the one thing she always hangs over my head, even now, she said, one of the first things you said to me was, I'm a conditioning coach for the men's World Cup ski team. <laughs> she thought, what kind of bonehead is this guy? But somehow I managed, somehow I managed to, uh, she, didn't, she didn't just tell me to take off. And we, we talked and, yeah, we just kind of hit it off. And then I started seeing her after that. That's awesome. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons why you stayed over there or one of the reasons why you made life over there rather than coming back to Canada at some point? Or No, no, that that's not one of the reasons I stayed. That's the reason. The I reason. Stayed. Okay. Yeah. 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 Actually, when we first started getting serious, in the back of my head, I was thinking of uh, how am I going to get her and her daughter, Vera, over to Canada? Because as a Canadian growing up in Canada, on my dad's side of the family, they've been in Canada, most of them from Scotland to Nova Scotia and then from Nova Scotia to uh, Western Canada, um, generations, like from the 1700s. And then on my mom's side, Swedish immigrants first to Minnesota, pretty typical of the Scandinavians, and then they moved up to Saskatchewan, and then eventually my mom ended up in Calgary. So, you know, you're thinking, hey, this is the promised land. Everyone wants to come to Canada, right? And Canada is an amazing country. There's no question of that. And so I thought I'll be able to convince her to come to Canada because she's got this little apartment over here in Innsbruck, and everybody in Canada's got a big house, and this won't be a problem. And then she was like, no, I'm not going to leave my family. And I said, well, we'll take Vera with us, of course. Yeah, but then there's my parents, and I don't want to rip Vera out of school, and I don't want to take Vera away from her grandparents. And 
that was actually quite an issue with her grand with uh with her parents with Regina's parents where uh they're worried about this guy maybe trying to hijack his family or his only grandchild to Canada. Mm. And actually at the beginning, it's kind of funny because on the opposite side of the coin, my sister was not a big fan of Regina and she never said it, but I'm sure it was because here's this Austrian so-and-so who's taken my little brother and convinced him to stay in Austria. Interesting. So, nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you you become a, a dad very quickly, I, I guess, in some sense. So how was that um, transition for you and it or, or the role of being a, a man in the life of a, a young person? So. Yeah, it was uh, wasn't quite as being thrown into cold water as it would be for some people because Regina had a really good uh, relationship with her ex. Mm. They they were never married, but they were they live in common wall common law, and uh, they'd been apart for quite a while before I met them, and uh, before I met Vera. Vera, when I met her, was six years old. I'm sorry, yeah, six. She was six, and uh, she she used to see her dad every weekend, and we're actually all really good friends now. And mm. I met Regina in '94. We got married in '98, and her ex, his name is Luki, Vera's dad. So I was never Vera's dad because she always knew her dad, and he was always he's always in her life. But uh, Luki played the guitar at our wedding. Oh wow, <laughs> yeah. that's so, cool. It's, it's it's really nice that everybody gets along. All right. And so I never had to play the role of uh, surrogate father. She always knew who her dad was. And one time, I think someone said, we were walking down the street one time, Baron and I, and uh, someone said, oh, you and your dad are doing something, blah, blah, blah. And I can't remember if Farrah said, oh, he's not my dad, or if she'd said nothing. But then afterwards, she said to me, yeah, well, you're my half-dad. <laughs> in German, it would be... You be my hub, Papa, and so that that made me feel good, you know. Uh, I remember so, the I remember the first time she let me hold her hand. I wow. picked her up in kindergarten, and she she took my hand. That was a, that was a big moment for me. That's uh, cool. That's so. cool. I'm gonna read your. Uh, I do this little thing with my book. The day you were born, I always read people what what their purpose is, so to speak. So your January 25th was your birthday. Yeah. So you're an Aquarius 7, so your purpose is to align your will with his using your faith to protect you so that you can manifest your dreams without becoming hurt or being destroyed. He that is discontented in one place will seldom be content in another. Aesop, Greek storyteller. Aquarius 7s are gifted, but that gift can lead to destruction unless they have developed from within. They need faith, a belief in themselves, and in something greater. They will have... They will live with divine discontent until they accept a spiritual path. Others will take advantage of them if they remain innocent and able to to protect themselves. If they are street smart, they could take advantage of everyone else. Aquarius sevens are incredibly intuitive and struggle with depression and mood swings. They are creative and able to pass through doors closed to others. Don't know if any of that re- re- hits you or not, but uh, that's that's your read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of it hits. Um... <laughs> My, it's funny you say I'm an Aquarius 7 because my favorite number was always 7. Like when I played at UC, it was number 7, and I always liked that number. Mm. Um, 
the stuff about what was that about being street smart? Just, <laughs> that 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 connected with you being street smart. Um, they, if they are street smart, they could take advantage of everyone else. <laughs> Corey Simmons are incredibly I, intuitive and struggle with depression and mood swings. So to speak. I, I would I would say I'm not street smart enough. <laughs> I was actually recruited by London Life, the life insurance company. Right. Uh, when I was finishing up my phys ed degree, and the first thing I told the guy, I, I said, "Well, why would you want? Why would you want to recruit me? I I played football and I I just got a phys ed degree. I don't have a business or economics or anything." He says, "Hey, we'll educate you. We don't. We're not worried about your education, but we like athletes because they're competitive." And I said, well, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I understand that, but I'm not really into selling life insurance. And he says, well, I think I can convince you it's a really cool thing. So they flew us. There was about 10 of us from Calgary that flew out to London Life for this recruiting thing. And I told the guy ahead of time, 90% chance I'm not going to do it. And he said, hey, I'm willing to take that chance because when I show you how good this, this gig is, I'm sure you'll want to do it. And I went out there and... Just, I'm not a salesman. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I can sell some things. I can sell a training program, but <laughs> I've, I've, been, uh, I've done a couple of multi-level marketing things, and I'm just not a salesman, mm. you know? Yeah, I, yeah like, that's it. I can sell, I, like, just the street smart taking advantage. No. But, right. and. Have you ever heard of the game Three Card Monty? Yeah, I don't know it, but I've heard of it, yeah. The three cards, and you always got to find the ace, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, uh, I, got, I got nailed bad playing Three Card Monty once in New York. My brother lives in New York, so I, was, I, got, I got scammed pretty good for, yeah. I think, for 50 bucks. <laughs> playing Three Card Monty, so yeah. I'm I'm the street car, I'm the streetwise guy who takes advantage of everyone else. <laughs> I'm talking ironically, of course. So you going to Austria? I'm just curious, as a Canadian boy, like what was the what was the cultural um, shift you had to make to make a life in Austria? Um, that's a very good question. Um, Met very, very, very few people who were not friendly or, or um, like almost any time I'd tell someone I was from Canada, they were always nice and that very, very few. Sometimes you hear about the Austrians being uh, not so foreigner friendly mm -hmm. and uh, I Personally, never really had any problems with that. Um, but punctuality is a big thing. <laughs> I, I do know Austrians that are not punctual, but like today I had a workout at 1 o'clock. It's, it's 5 o'clock uh, where I am, 5 p.m. And at 1 p.m. I had a workout, and one of the guys showed up at about two minutes after 1. And one of the, I didn't say anything because I thought, well, it's not such a big deal that he's two minutes late. But one of the athletes said to him, hey, you know, you're late. 
that's that's the culture here and that that was a big thing when i ended up working with the canadian team that was tough uh mm. to go back to that culture of uh not being punctual but mm. punctuality is very important here yeah so so that was kind of cool like if someone says i'll meet you at four o'clock in austria that means they'll meet you at fucking four o'clock <laughs> Yeah. No questions asked. Yeah. Like I, said, I know a couple of Austrians that are not punctual, but basically four o'clock means four o'clock. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then working with the team, there was no, uh, as a strength and conditioning coach with the Austrian ski team, I wasn't a motivator. Mm. Yeah. Because I didn't have to motivate them. Right. That, that's like motivating guys that want to play in the NHL. Well, you know, every once in a while you might have a problem child that you have to work with, but uh, yeah, motivation was not, was not a big issue. Hmm. And that, that was kind of interesting. Um, and um, took me a while to learn the language. Um, a big cultural difference is... Uh, do you speak French? Yes, I do. You're from yeah. Quebec, right? Yeah. Okay. So in Quebec, you have the polite way of speaking, mm -hmm. which is vous, right. and then you have tu. Like, I yeah, know yeah. you, so I, I would say, comment allez-vous, uh, uh, or however you say yeah. that. I'm sorry, I don't speak French. But, and so you have that in German as well. Okay. And a lot of times I really would get the feeling that people were kind of keeping me at arm's length. By speaking formal. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Which is uh, sometimes uh, can be a little strange for me. Mm -hmm. But yeah. now you're pretty now you're pretty fluent in it, I guess, at this point. Pretty fluent. But if someone wants to speak jargon with me uh, in sports sciences and someone could run circles around me if, if they want to speak really heavy right. duty scientific german yeah right uh, right right but i do all like i do all my business on over the phone in german uh at, at a certain point i told regina i said look i think we should start speaking german at home because if i don't start speaking german at home i'm never going to learn it so um yeah i tried to really immerse myself into it mm. and all, pretty much everything I do on the internet is in English, and most of the scientific papers I need or read are in English. So I still use English a lot in my work, but most of my working language is German. Mm -hmm. um, but German, German is not much fun to curse in. I mean, you can curse in German, but it's just... Like, I've heard languages like Spanish are really good for cursing, but... I think English is a great as a great language for cursing, and German, in my opinion, is not a great language for cursing. So when I when I get off on a tangent and start cursing, it's usually in English. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm just curious, like to kind of bring this thing to a conclusion. What is it? What is it that you fell in love with and are still in love with in in what you do? just helping someone try to get the best out of themselves mm. you know um, 
I don't know if you can say that helping someone reach their potential because it's really hard to gauge what someone's potential is. But I think when, when you see someone and they have that moment where it clicks for them, like the light bulb, you see the light bulb going off in their head. And it, sometimes it's in the gym, but more often than not, it's, it's on the field or in the gymnastics hall or on the judo mat or wherever. And, and, you th and then to think, wow, I had a small part of helping that person get there. Or I, I hope I had a small part of getting that person there. It's, sometimes I think we take ourselves a little too seriously. And hmm. I think sometimes we play a huge role, but I think a lot of times we play a smaller role than we really think we play. Hmm. And oh. so I would say for me, it's just when somebody just gets that click moment and you think, well, I hope I, hope I was part of that. Mm. You know? And sometimes, sometimes it's a great uh, sporting accomplishment, and sometimes it's not a great sporting accomplishment, but it's a big moment for that person. Mm -hmm. What's been one of those uh, great sport moments for you in your career watching an athlete uh, succeed or have success? What one's point of reflection on that? Well, I've been very, very lucky and I've worked with some people that have won world championships and I've worked with people that have won gold medals at the Olympics. But probably one of my proudest moments is when Janine Flock or in English or in German, you'd say Floch. She, she, in skeleton at the Olympics, it's four runs like bobsleigh. And going into the final run, she was in first place. She made, a, she made a mistake quite early in the run, like one of the first turns. If not the first turn, it was the second turn. She made a mistake, and she never got it back, and she ended up in fourth place. Mm. And she gave such a great interview, because immediately after the race, she's got people sticking microphones in her face, and that's, mm. for me as an athlete, I don't think I could have handled that. But she gave a really gracious and adult interview and um, I was just really proud of her for her to be able to handle that situation where she went from Olympic glory to getting a big pile of shit poured on her head and here she is with all this stuff dripping down and she says hey you know things just didn't work out and I did my best and it just wasn't meant to be and just was really mature and that was that was a big moment for me. Mm, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Well, sir, uh, as usual, when I talk to guys of uh, our ilk, you could probably go on for hours, but uh, you have to cut it off at the past at some point. Um, yeah. It's been a beautiful conversation. It's nice to get to know your history and where you've come from, and where you've gone to, and. Uh, Wish you the best with uh, what's ahead in life, and uh, stay in touch, my friend. Thanks, Scotty. We, di we didn't we didn't get a chance to talk about how I got into strength training again after playing football, but that's that's okay. We can leave that for another time. Maybe at some point you'll be over here, and we can talk about that over beers. But that was <laughs> well. You tell me that story now. How did you get into strength training? I, I have time. If you have time, <laughs> I got that. Um, when I um, when I uh, 
So I worked with the Austrian team for three years, and then I was approached by uh, the director of their program, um, uh, Slovenian guy, you probably know him, uh, Josha. Okay. Josha, and unfortunately I can't remember Josha's last name right now, but Josha approached me about working with the team, and I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to work with my country again, and... And so we talked, and then I ended up working with them. I worked for two years with them. And uh, then I started using a lot of um, Charles and Ian King's concept mm -hmm. in strength. Because that was like the internet and strength training was starting to take off. Mm -hmm. So I was using some ideas from Charles and Ian when I was working with the Canadians. And then, then I quit. And uh, took some time off, and I'd had a, that ACL that I blew up playing football. I never had it operated on. And so I continued to do sports with a loose knee. And then I started really having problems, so I decided to finally get it fixed. So I got it fixed, and I thought, okay, this is a good time to get it fixed because I'm unemployed. have time to get <laughs> out again. And uh, so while I was unemployed, I thought, uh, you know, I'm starting to look like a coach instead of an athlete because in my 30s, Sometimes people would ask me, oh, when's your race? And I'd say, hey, I'm a coach and be, think I'm pretty cool because people think I look like an athlete, right? <laughs> so now I'm starting to look like a coach and I think, Jesus, you better start doing something. So uh, this might be, uh, for some people, maybe embarrassing, but do you, do you know the name Bill Phillips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He used to yeah, be yes. with, yeah, yeah. with that magazine, uh Charles yeah, I did I, I did the physique transformation on that uh, to body for I life. My, yeah I did that myself yeah, you did that yeah that's cool. that's how I got back into training I, <laughs> I, I thought, well I, I want someone to coach me I'm I'm tired of doing programs for other people I want someone to do a program for me so I read his book and that was the first time I really saw the connection between psychology and training mm -hmm. Trying to figure out what your motivations are, what your drivers are, why do you really want to do this? And once I figured out why I wanted to do this, then I was in. And I did, and because I was unemployed, I, I did it actually with a buddy of mine who wanted to do it early in the morning because he was working. So every morning, six days a week. And I, I did the whole program through, and I couldn't believe with that short interval program, three days a week, and weight training. Uh, the fat was just melting off of me. And I got in decent shape. And um, and then I started reading uh, Charles and Ian. And Ian was writing a lot for testosterone. T-Nation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I did two of his programs, 12-week programs that were four phases, three-week phases, and I did his program, and I was I was like, I could not believe, like, because I'd never had a coach, and I'd learned things through the years working, but Ian had this, and it was a generic program, and he said that. I mean, he had some flexibility, because he's doing this on the internet, right? He's writing this for T Nation. And so he, he said, well, if you're more into hypertrophy, do this. If you're more into maximum strength, do this. But this 12-week program with four phases and I did that and I was really really impressed and pleased with how uh, how my strength went up doing his mm -hmm. program mm -hmm. 
And I thought, okay, now uh, stay with it and don't. And that really helped me a lot working with athletes uh, to train yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I don't think it's important to be able to bench uh, 150 kilos, but I think it's important to understand a little bit the struggle. And the struggle can mean, oh, I don't feel like training today, but I have to train or having a program that you're doing and whether it's stretching or running or biking or doing weights, I think you have to have something in your life as a coach. And it, to me, it has to be physical and it doesn't mean you have to be trying to be in the masters 60 plus world indoor rowing championships or anything but just there has to be some sort of struggle so you understand the struggle that athletes have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah. and even if it's just getting up in the morning and doing uh, 20 sit-ups you know, yeah, it's that experimentation with your own body and how you learn through that experimentation. It's funny listening to you because I had, I think you and I have, have a very similar trajectory in terms of the influencing and drivers like Charlie and Ian's stuff uh, influenced my methodological construct early on. And I did the Bill Phillips uh, tra physique transformation. And I've even done P90X for shits and giggles to do, to, 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 to get myself back in shape when I was in my mid forties, but yeah, you have to kind of push yourself through these things and try them, but then you also create your own critical construct for how you train the athletes. And yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool. It's cool to listen to. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Then, just one other thing though, about yeah. Ian King, like sometimes reading his stuff and then having the opportunity to be at a couple of uh, his seminars I thought, how does this guy know so much? And kind of the same with Charles. Like, he and Charles, both fairly intimidating just because they're so knowledgeable. Mm. So one time, uh, Ian was in Innsbruck, and he said, well, I have to be at the airport in an hour and a half, so I guess I got about 45 minutes that we can just talk. And there was about 10 of us at this seminar. And I said, okay, I got a question for you. Well, actually, it's three questions in one. I said, do you read for pleasure? Um, do you speed read? And how many hours a week do you read? And he said, well, I don't read for pleasure. He says, well, once a week on the weekend, I'll read the weekend paper, like the, either the Saturday or the Sunday paper. I'll read that once a week. Uh, I speed read, and I read about 20 hours a week. And I thought, wow. okay, that." kind of explains a lot mm -hmm. so yeah. well to your point like i think there's some people who have just uh an affinity for information gathering and some people have an affinity for information digesting and um recognizing and things like that I, you know to your to your space i never considered myself in that genre of professional in that in in the industry i have a i've i've, I've, I've an affinity for pattern recognition and seeing things and understanding movement and quality and things like that. But the, the, that methodological, um, the way those guys thought or the way they digested information was not my style. That's for sure. But no, I, I try to do that at times, but it's not my style either. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, everybody's got to find their style and everybody yeah. finds their, their way of creating, you know, um, success and success for the people that they work with. And obviously you've done, been doing that for a while, my friend, yeah. in your own, your own neck of the woods. So one day soon, hopefully I'll get to Innsbruck and we'll have a beer together, but, uh, be know, great. we'll see where it goes. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, thanks for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it very much. It was great no, to talk. I appreciate you having me on the podcast, Scott, and I've been listening to it and learning lots and, uh, have some really cool people on here that I've learned a lot from. So I really appreciate what you're doing and uh, keep it up. And uh, it's an honor to spend some time with you and I'll continue to learn from you. So thanks again. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for taking the time. Okay. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>